Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. With the day that's in it, it's the publication of the monthly Exchequer Returns. I've just been looking up their legal basis, and I find that they're unaudited, which is always an interesting thing for a government set of accounts. Apparently, the, the financial accounts for the full year are audited, but these are haven't been too uh, checked by the bean counters. That's what unaudited usually means. But I think that we can attest to their accuracy. Certainly, if they're anything like accurate, they are quite remarkable. I'm old enough to remember a couple of things, Jim. When there was speculation a while ago that an annual number for corporation tax would hit 10 billion, and some people poo-pooed that, that we'd never get there. And I think that there's an interesting number in today's today's release of data. The other thing I remember is that people used to say, I think the Department of Finance, the finance minister himself used to say that the hit to... Irish corporation tax receipts from the OECD, BEPS, all that stuff, global tax reform could be around 2 billion in the context of Ireland's taxes. Of course, that's a big number. But from what I can gather from today's numbers, 2 billion is becoming chump change. Or is that an exaggeration? Tell us about the numbers, Jim. Hi, Chris. Uh, Actually, you have hit me with something I wasn't aware of, that the um, monthly exchequer returns were not audited. So... um... I you found learned. that on the internet, Jim, and as you know, we shouldn't believe everything that we read on the internet. <laughs> of course we shouldn't. Uh, I think it's indicative of somebody who has too much time on their hands, Chris. The exchequer returns for the first 11 months of the year, and, and remember, November is always an incredibly important month, are incredibly strong. Okay, I, I would stress, before I t- talk about the individual numbers, that last year, the income tax, self-assessment income tax returns were deferred until December because of COVID. So the year-on-year comparison um, is a little bit exaggerated by that. But that aside, 
um, the absolute level of taxation that's being collected virtually across the board in the first 11 months of the year is incredibly strong. And we might discuss a little bit later on in the context of COVID, but this is incredibly important in terms of uh, the exchequer finances, the amount of money available to continue to support businesses who are again facing pretty difficult trading conditions. But we'll get back to that. But we collected 62.3 billion um, in the first 11 months of the year. That's 21.8% or 11.2 billion higher than last year. And within that, income tax is up 20, sorry, income tax 24.5 billion collected. That's up 25.2% or 4.9 billion. You know, that's indicative of the ongoing strength of the of the labor market. And indeed, we got labor market data this week showing that in November the unemployment rate fell to 5.8, sorry, 5.2% of the labor force and 6.9% when you adjust for COVID, that's the lowest level of unemployment we've seen over the last couple of years. So the labour market very strong, and that is clearly feeding into um, the income tax take. The second highest category of tax, uh, VAT, that's tax on spending, basically fifteen point two billion collected, twenty four point three percent ahead of last year. That's three billion euro, and that's reflecting uh, the strong retail sales we're seeing in the economy and particularly the 20% growth we're seeing in new car sales in the first 11 months of the year. And then the third piece is the one you um, allude to, which is probably the most interesting is the corporation tax situation. 13.55 billion collected. That's 26.5% ahead of the same period last year, which is equivalent to 2.8 So corporation tax is continuing to grow um, at an incredibly strong pace. And that does reflect the very strong performance of the multinational sector in this country, which we've spoken about many times uh, since we commenced this podcast last February. Uh, But it also reflects the strong performance of the tech multinationals, particularly uh, the strong earnings performance around the world. Uh, You asked me the question about you know, the impact of the OECD minimum taxation proposal. Um, Well, I I guess the answer to that is that at the earliest, that's going to be introduced in 2023. So we're not going to see it reflected. I think what is important is there is no indication that the impending introduction of that has had any impact on FDI and the Irish economy this year. And I would expect in the early days of January, when the IDA publishes its annual results for the for 2021, uh, that they will show further decent growth in foreign direct investment into the country. So uh, the Department of Finance has modelled, tried to model the impact of those corporation tax changes if implemented in 2023. And they believe that it could knock and this really is a guesstimate that it could knock two billion per annum off the corporation tax take. Well, the good news is that two billion is a pittance, and um, and that's two billion lower than they otherwise would have been. Okay, meaning that if and I think this is actually what's going to happen: corporation tax receipts are going to continue. 
to remain strong over the next few years. Uh, they'll be two billion less than they might have been, but for these changes. But you're still talking about growth in the corporation tax take. So it's an incredibly strong exchequer return. There's no doubt about that. Jim, would... I have to pick you up on the word pittance. I, um, I know exactly what you mean, but two billion is, is still a lot of money. Can we get it in some kind of context? I know you just run through the numbers, just so that I am clear, if if not our listeners, but the the overrun of corporation tax relative to what was expected at the beginning of this year is is what at the moment, roughly. Um, well, it's it's running two point eight billion ahead of the same period last year, and is is running. I, I understand about one and a half to two billion ahead of what had been expected as, as you say or yeah. as, as i said that if we if we took that two billion hit we'd just be going back to where we started really and provided we haven't spent the money on recurring items that we have done something sensible with the money it shouldn't be that big a deal i think that's probably what you meant by the word pittance uh it it, it is indeed absolutely an important point about these check returns as I mentioned, is in the context of what's happening here on the COVID front uh, with a lot of fear certainly percolating around here. Uh, Hospitality businesses are suffering significantly and it's not just because of any restrictions in place, it's because people are now afraid to go out in many cases and a lot of Christmas parties have been cancelled. I was talking to somebody this afternoon who had a hotel room booked in Dublin for the night of the 22nd of December and got a phone call today saying the hotel wouldn't be open, that they hadn't sold sufficient beds to make it worthwhile. So that that is a, an extraordinary state of affairs in the run-up to Christmas and it does indicate the pressures and the problems for the whole accommodation and food services sector at the moment. And it also highlights clearly the necessity for government to continue to support those sectors through the employee wage subsidy scheme. And the good news is that based on the tax returns today, uh, the money is available to do that. Uh, We'd be in a a really bad situation if uh, we saw this necessity to support those businesses and at the same time, tax revenues were very weak. They're not. They're very strong. um, And it's really good news. And looking ahead to 2022, I don't see any reason um, at this juncture and famous last words, but I don't see any reason at this juncture as to why we will not achieve another record level of corporation tax next year. And just to point out that in 2021, we're probably going to collect around 64 to 65 billion in total taxation. That is the highest level by a mile we've ever achieved in this country. And I believe it's going to be higher next year. So at least the revenue side of the public finances in a very healthy state, notwithstanding the challenges posed by those corporation tax changes, uh, which I would be reasonably relaxed about. That obviously facilitates the ability for government to spend where it needs to spend to support those businesses that are once again, subject to serious COVID-related problems. Yeah, I know I'm hearing anecdotally and and lots of anecdotally reports of just restaurant bookings being cancelled. You mentioned Christmas parties and hotels. It's across the whole hospitality sector, of course, people voting with their feet or their bookings. That said, there's an interesting piece in The Economist this week, um, focusing very much on the states, but I think it has broader applicability in which it talks about the resilience of the global economy 
with respect to whatever does hit us next with the the new variant uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, and it has um, it replicates a Goldman Sachs uh, index of effectiveness of lockdowns and what they actually, what impact that they're having at the beginning of the pandemic. This this index reached about fifty five to give you the absolute number, and it's currently about twelve. Um, so it's it's dropped um, a lot. And the Economist quotes a statistic which is is very interesting, which is that the economic cost of of lockdowns. Uh, and private sector retrenchments, so the part of that is people um, voting with their feet, in the States at least has dropped 75% since the beginning of the pandemic, or the, or the height of the pandemic, if you like, in its first wave. And so the economist concludes that whatever the new variant does to us, or perhaps most of what we can guess about what the new variant might do to us, the economy will take a hit, but it won't be anything like the hits that it took in 2020. Uh, there's been a lot of learning. There's been a lot of adaptation. And I, I know we talk about working from home and all the rest of it, but th- it's quite remarkable. And it's a story that's yet to be fully written, just how adaptive the economy, us, if you like, have, pr- have proven to be with re- with respect to, the, to, to, to lockdowns and, and other covid restrictions and so i think that there is room for some optimism for 2022 even in the face of this new variant at least from an economic perspective provided it isn't apocalyptic and i've not seen any scientists that say that we're going to get you know complete vaccine escape and all those other apocalyptic type forecasts the economic consequences while they're not great as we've just discussed they may well turn out to be perhaps better than the worst fears might suggest at the moment. Jim, in terms of going back to those raw numbers, what what impact overall do you think it will have on government borrowing in 2021 in terms of where we thought we were again at the beginning of the year, what the finance minister told us in the recent budget? Do you think there's going to be a further revision on, on to, to that budget deficit expected outcome for this year with only just what three and a half weeks to go? Can I just clarify something, Chris, before I go on? Uh, you asked me the question about the um, corporation tax receipts, how far ahead of profile were they? It's actually 2.8 billion ahead of what I think they you said two and a half. So we'll, we'll, get, yeah. we'll cut you some slack there. Jim. Yeah, but, but ba- basically what they were forecasting this time last year was that corporation tax would be largely um, unchanged this year. And of course, that was revised up significantly in the budget. And that is now transpiring. And we're going to come in with over 14 billion in total corporation tax receipts this year, which is an incredibly strong number. Um, in terms of the overall borrowing requirement, um, in the first 11 months of the calendar year, we have borrowed 1.5 billion. Uh, the expectation for 2021 was a deficit of somewhere, well, initially it was over 20 billion. More recently, it has been running at about 17 billion. So we're going to come in dramatically ahead of those those forecasts so for 2022 um if you assume as i've said there that tax receipts continue to show buoyancy during 2022 and provided uh, spending is not driven off the spectrum by serious covid restrictions and so on um, i would expect us to come in with a very very low deficit next year so thankfully the public finances have really come through uh, this COVID situation in remarkably rude health. 
Uh, some people would, of course, argue that we've spent too much over the last two years. Um, I, I always answer that question or sorry, that statement by saying that, well, think about the consequences. If government had not stepped in and spent that money on health, on social protection and on those various business supports, uh, the economy, the households, the businesses would be in a serious mess at the moment. And the basis for economic growth in 2022 would be seriously suspect. So I think the government spending was needed, was appropriate and was very helpful in sustaining the economy in the longer term. So I think the Minister for Finance and the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform uh, would be, you know, quite comfortable this evening about what's happening in terms of the public finances. So that really is good news in my view. I don't want to get too far into the weeds of the actual numbers and the different concepts, definitions that people, the government uses for its various types of deficit, but there are there is more than one type of deficit. And what we learned today, as I understand it, Jim, is that the exchequer surplus or deficit for the first uh, 11 months of the year was 1.465 billion. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Against the same period last year, 8.9 billion. So that's a huge reduction. Um, One point one and a half billion in terms of government finances. I think that if you were to cut the finance minister some slack, you'd say that that was broad uh, balance, to be honest. It is indeed. Um, yeah, it's vir- virtually broad balance. Yeah. But again, at, at, at risk of the uh, definitional thing that I don't particularly want to get into, that's the exchequer surplus. That's not the same thing as, as the, the government borrow, overall government borrowing requirement. Is that right or am I wrong? Yeah, you're, you're correct. The, um, the deficit target that Ireland has to achieve, you know, for EU purposes is the general government deficit, uh, which includes other aspects of uh government and semi-state and local authority activities. So the general government deficit is a much broader definition of the um, public finances and the government sector. And um, unfortunately, they don't publish that number on a month-to-month basis. But I suspect the general government deficit would be very close to that exchequer deficit in the first 11 months. Wow. I I can't confirm that. We, we, We really won't get the general government deficit figure until sometime into next year but it 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 does look pretty healthy to me to be honest do you think that there's a case for looking back at the most recent budget and saying that the boys missed a trick and that with this you know fantastic financial position of the government they could have uh spent a lot more money in in principle clearly they could presumably uh, the spending should have been on capital the capital side the country's infrastructure needing more money or even perhaps and or cut taxes uh, is there a case for saying that or is, are you are you happy that this is this is the correct way to be running fiscal policy and, and in in a sense banking the, the the surplus coming from rapid economic growth rather than spending it or cutting taxes okay um i am a fiscal conservative chris in the last couple of days, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, which is the fiscal watchdog, um, and, and the IFAC had been pretty critical of government ahead of the budget based on what it saw as the plans and was basically arguing that you know there was too much happening on the expenditure side and they were a bit concerned about what was going to happen on the taxation side. Um, and in the last couple of days, IFAC has come out Um, pretty supportive of the government's budgetary stance. Personally, I would agree with that. I think IFAC is correct 
um, I think a relatively conservative approach was totally appropriate in the current circumstances because the economy is doing well. And if an economy is doing well, what's the point in having a pro-cyclical fiscal policy pumping more money into the system? Uh, The government, I think, obviously, well, the Department of Finance obviously took the view that pumping more money into an economy facing capacity constraints uh, would actually generate even more supply side pressures and price pressures in the system. So I think the government's approach was correct economically, but I also think politically it was correct because if you are going to have a giveaway budget, um, it's next year and the year after, that's when it should happen because you're at the much more advanced stage of the political cycle. Um, Although I, I would worry that even if we get expansionary budgets next year and the year after pro pre-election budgets uh, that it's not going to do much to change the fortunes of the government in terms of the opinion polls because um, I think there is a strong sense of disillusionment about the place with the ongoing handling of COVID-19 by government and um, the Minister for Health uh, is particularly coming in for a lot of criticism at the moment and to be honest based on his ham-fisted approach over the last number of days uh i i wouldn't spare my criticism there either um i think he's doing absolutely nothing to help the credibility of the government and the whole communication thing is all wrong at this stage but anyway from the perspective of the political cycle uh budget 2022 was not the budget to go on a spending and taxation spree if you're going to do that it's budget 23 and budget 24. That is assuming we don't have a general election until February 2024. Yeah, if the economist is right, and I must say that I would lean into their kind of expectations. I, I dread to use the word forecast about that um, things were going to be are still going to be okay for next year, notwithstanding the new variant. Uh, so that this kind of economic growth that is generating these sorts of financial numbers will continue. The labour market will continue to improve, maybe two steps forward, one step backward, but it's it, it's looking good that way. So I think people's lives are going to improve from the from an employment perspective. I would see these government finance thing, trends that we're seeing here continue as well, which means that the prospects for a really big giveaway budget next year and or the year after must be very high, particularly when you know we talked again as as we always do at this time of the month about corporation tax and how it always comes in stronger than expected without patting ourselves on the back too much jim we've been saying for ages that the it we, we may well be charging 12 and a half percent maybe going up to 15 percent on these profits but the thing that we're charging a percentage of is incredibly buoyant uh the profits of these companies and obviously we we don't know exactly how much they're declaring in ireland relative to, to elsewhere in the world but certainly the aggregate profits of these kinds of companies are just growing um, enormously. Uh, this is where all of the world's profits are, actually, are in these, these kinds of companies. And it may well turn out to be, you know, Ireland is the you know the luckiest country in the world with respect to where profits are being taxed and where that growth is coming from, because there are many ordinary non-tech companies where profits aren't growing very much. Um, it's It's these tech companies. And short of the US Justice Department or maybe the EU doing something to break these companies up to make them less profitable because they are natural monopolies by the looks of things and reaping monopoly profits, this ain't going to change very much. And 
if anything, Jim, if you've got this enormous number, this enormous tax base that is growing, and I'll use a COVID type word here, exponentially, and your tax rate is going up from 125 to 15%, guess what might actually happen to your corporation taxes? We talk about a 2 billion hit. Well, maybe not. Obviously, we don't know because of the, the, the way in which that tax base is shifted geographically. That's the point of the reforms. But it isn't beyond the realms of possibility that once these reforms do kick in, and I accept that you're saying, it, it, of course, it's 2023 and onwards, we might be pleasantly surprised. Um, yeah, I think it's important to um, emphasize what that two billion hit actually means. It's that corporation tax would be two billion lower than they otherwise would have been. Um, so that's that, that is a subtle difference. That's important. But as I said earlier, I, I think based on what we can see at the moment, that the corporation tax take will grow again next year. And that that, you know, that that two billion becomes pretty irrelevant in the overall scheme of things uh, that that is, as I say, provided international winds continue to blow in a favorable direction. Um, I would not like to see uh, the government engaging in any sort of uh, borrowing or, well, sorry, spending and taxation binge. I think a conservative approach is required at this stage. Uh, the Fiscal Advisory Council published another research paper in recent days about the challenges in the health sector. And, uh, you know, they show the exponential growth in health expenditure here over the last number of years, uh, way ahead of most other OECD countries. Uh, and that is despite the fact that we still have a relatively young population and we're not seeing the sort of age-related pressures on public expenditure at this stage. And um, the problem, of course, is that as those age-related age pressures start to kick in over the coming years, uh, with pressure on government's health spending, with pressure on pension coverage, and with pressure on care for older people, uh, you know, there is going to be incessant upward pressure on health spending and indeed age-related spending generally. And IFAC also said that they fear that the true cost of slauncher care is not built into projections because the last time the government released any sort of figures on the cost of slauncher care uh, was 2017 and they haven't updated since despite the fact that the cost of delivering health service has increased. So um, if, if, if you accept that sort of very uh, critical analysis of where health spending is likely to go over the coming decades. Uh, I really do think ongoing prudent managers, management of the public finances is exactly what we should be doing. But I stress again, Chris, I am a fiscal conservative. Yes, um, and I'm going to. I'm wearing my political hat um, metaphorically anyway, and I think that the um, the finances are going to be there for an attempt in principle at least, for the, the coalition to buy the next election. And the, the issue, the question arises in my mind from what you've been saying is that you're not sure if the Irish electorate is biddable in that way. Are they viable in that way, Jim? I just don't think so at the moment. I'm, sorry, I, I'm certain not at the moment. Uh, I think there's just a general sense of disillusionment with government at the minute and that the, the, the the performance of the health minister certainly has not helped that situation. Perhaps that will change 
over the remainder of the electoral cycle. Who knows? There's, there's lots of different ways of looking at this. If, if you were in government at the moment um, and, and if you adopted my sort of fiscally conservative approach, what you're effectively doing is handing over to the incoming government, presumably led by Sinn Féin, uh, this whole lump of money that they can then spend, uh, which they would. You know, So in other words, the prudent fiscal management of government would actually benefit the opposition when they get into government. So th- that sort of militates against the sort of fiscally conservative approach uh, that I am advocating. So uh, as is always the case, this interaction between politics and economics is going to be incredibly interesting over the next couple of years. And uh, I, I guess the approach that is likely, more likely to be taken by government is to actually try and win the next election. Um, I'm yeah. just not convinced they'll succeed. There was, um, in a few years ago now, in a change of government here in the UK, the outgoing Chancellor of the Exchequer left a letter for his for the incoming uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer. And it said, Dear new Chancellor of the Exchequer, just wanted to tell you there is no money. Yours sincerely, the outgoing Chancellor of the Exchequer. Now, what you're telling me, Jim, is that the fiscal conservative would have the opposite letter written for the next government in that the letter on, um, what's the Sinn Féin guy's finance minister going to be? Pierce Doherty. Pierce Doherty, yeah. Um, the letter he's going to have on his desk is, Dear Pierce, there's a ton of money. Enjoy it, really. Do you think that's real politic, Jim? Uh, no, it's not, Chris. Uh, yeah, I think you've highlighted the stupidity of my fiscal conservatism. No, I didn't put it quite so pejoratively, but uh, um, I think the real politic of, of this um, fiscal dividend, if you like, means that uh, I think the co- if, the, if and I agree it's a big if, the coalition has a strategy for the next election, it's going to be based on full employment, which is where obviously it will hope to be in a year or two's time, perhaps even sooner, um, lower taxes, and a lump of money thrown, more money thrown at both health and housing. Um, it, it's a fairly simple strategy, but they, that that must be if they if they are thinking strategically, that must be what they're thinking about ahead of the next election. Would be would be my guess. Well, if you're going to throw money anywhere, it has to be into housing and infrastructure. And uh, we've discussed this in a previous podcast. When you look at all of the supply side bottlenecks on the housing side. Uh, you just wonder what impact just plowing money into the system would have at the moment. Is the system actually capable of delivering housing in the current environment? Uh, The evidence would suggest it's not. So if you just keep throwing money into it, you're just going to accentuate um, all of those problems and all of those bottlenecks in the system and make things worse. The um, what's going to be really important clearly over the next couple of years for Ireland and that whole public finance outlook and particularly the corporation tax side is what happens the global economy and this week the OECD as it always does in early December came out with its latest um, half yearly forecast for the global economy and it's basically saying that output in most OECD countries has now surpassed the late 2019 level and is converging on its pre-pandemic path But lower income economies, particularly those where vaccination rates are low, are at risk of being left behind. So here we have a pretty upbeat assessment of the world in 22 from the OECD, uh, but clear messages sent out there about the growing economic 
inequality around the world. And of course, the other thing that naturally is focused in on is the um, threat on the inflation front. What did you make of the OECD's latest? The OECD numbers were were, were pretty upbeat about growth. Not a big change from their last half yearly forecast in terms of the growth numbers. Where the changes came, not surprisingly, was in terms of their inflation forecasts. The other event of the week was the Federal Reserve. Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, um, acting to finally abolish the word transitory with respect to inflation. He said it's time to retire that word. And I wonder whether he's got his timing completely arseways in that one of the things that many commentators have noticed is something we spoke about on a recent podcast when we were discussing inflation was how some of these key commodity prices that have led the world inflation rate up have actually shown some signs of turning around. We talked about wood prices or lumber prices and some other things as well. The oil price this week is is off quite a bit. Now, that's obviously COVID variant related, but there are other things going on in other commodity prices as well. And some are beginning to speculate, just as we have been, that the the whole supply side squeeze um, is beginning to abate. That said, if the new variant does cause another supply problem, which it could well do in the same way that the first uh, few variants did, then this inflation, Powell will be undoubtedly right to, to retire the word transitory. But the issue is, is why, what, what is this inflation coming through? Is it down to these supply shortages or is it something more systemic? And that's the decision when it comes to interest rates. Because well, Chris, it, the, the, the biggest driver is energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at, you know, average energy costs around the world up 25, 26 percent year on year. Um, home heating oil in this country up about 75 percent in the last 12 months. If you see next year um, oil prices leveling off or even starting to come back, the year on year base effect will be extraordinary. You know, you will see a dramatic um, decline in the year on year growth rate in energy costs, for example. And um, notwithstanding what you say there about the, the latest COVID variant having a negative impact on supply chains again. But if that does not turn out to be the case, and if the oil market performs as I kind of expected to perform with prices starting to at, at worst level off, um, possibly starting to come down a bit, uh, the year-on-year year impact on measured inflation will be quite extraordinary and that you could very quickly go from 5-6% year-on-year inflation rates down to 1-2% rates. So um, I am still not surrendering to that Powell view of the world that transitory should be retired. I, I, I tend to agree, Jim. It's just, I think, semantics, which is that it's gone on for so long. It, it, it might, whatever it is, it isn't transitory. Um, it might be temporary, <laughs> but it isn't transitory. As I say, it's, it's semantic. Chris, um, can, can, I, can I just bounce something off you? Um, apropos our last podcast when we were talking about um, anti-vaxxers and we were talking about the role of social media, um, and you, you cite an example of uh, somebody, an anti-vaxxer, you know, getting the virus and dying. And um, we were accused, well, I, I think it was you actually, but we were accused of being very biased in our coverage of that situation. And that why, for purpose of balance, we didn't talk about other people who have got the vaccine and have had problems as a consequence of that and down down in my home city of Waterford there was a very sad example of that in recent months how do you respond to that 
Well, I think it would take a whole podcast, if, if not a whole book, to respond to that, Jim, in full. First of all, almost superficially, the accusation that we're not balanced, that we are only representing one, one side of the argument, um, I shrug my shoulders at that and say, so what? It's our podcast. We can, we, we can say what we like. It's yeah, still, we're, not, we're not journalists. It's a free country. We're not, the, we're not the state broadcaster mandated always to have perfect balance, um, which can, of course, work against you. The perfect balance mandate for BBC, the BBC um, let the country down during, during Brexit when you had 99% of, of economists' opinion saying Brexit is going to be awful. And the Brexit nutcases in the economics profession were always given equal voice to the mainstream profession. Um, and, and that had, a, I think, contributed to a tragic outcome. So balance isn't always a good thing. And this podcast doesn't have to be balanced. Obviously, I think it is because I think we, you know, we do take into account other views. And we have discussed the anti-vax the more libertarian arguments, not unsympathetically at times, to the um, ways in which the, the, the lockdown has been handled. I am fascinated, and we can't go into it here, it'd be a rabbit hole that we disappear down forever, as to the, the fundamental question of why people believe what they do. Where do they get their information from? Where do they get their facts from? Where do people's beliefs actually come from? I think I know where I get mine from. I get mine from data, from reason, and from superior intelligence, um, I say that laughing. Of course, I don't. I don't genuinely believe that. And I know very, very intelligent people who reach exactly the opposite conclusion. Um, these days, using quite different data, I think it comes down to the sources of information that you choose to read. And I think the way in which the world has changed is that our trusted sources of information have disappeared. That's the newspapers. Maybe that's our teachers as well. Our universities—they're in trouble. And people get their facts from very, very different sources. I'm referring to social media here, of course. And for some strange reason, we all seem to have access to different facts. And we, we tend to greet them less skeptically than we did in the past. The particular correspondent that wrote to us, I think that he sincerely believed what he said in terms of there being peer group research, peer-reviewed peer reviewed research, that runs counter to our arguments. I don't think there is. I don't think that research is, is a very good quality to the extent that it exists at all. And he thinks that, um, he suggested in his comment to us that all of this COVID stuff is all about big business making money rather than the public health crisis. And I reject that totally. I do th accept that there is probably a kernel of truth in that argument in the sense that there is clearly company, there are companies making money out of this and there are companies making more money than they should and I'm not talking just about the, the vaccine makers. I'm talking about what went on in the UK with PPE equipment, for example, was, was nothing short of disgraceful on various occasions. So it, as always, it's complicated. Um, but I think our correspondent was, um, you, know, make, you know, obviously a very highly intelligent man who's barking up the wrong tree. Uh, yeah, quite fr frankly, I'm astounded at my experience in recent times, over the last couple of years, about how really intelligent people just buy into these conspiracy theories to such a dramatic extent. Uh, social media really has a lot to be answered for. Yeah, we should leave it there, Jim, but I uh, only leave it there for now because I think that the point that you're raising there, and I was stumbling around as well, is um, the, the conspiracy theories. Where do they come from and why are we, we so susceptible to them? Maybe there's a book in it. What do you think? I think there is a book in it, actually. All right. 
maybe are there any listeners out there that would be interested in reading a book written by Jim Power and Chris Johns about the links between politics, populism, psychology, human psychology, and the economy? We'll leave that question out there. Jim, it's been great talking to you as always. Speak to you soon. Absolutely, Chris. See ya. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.